You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. We are reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and for whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. G'day, City on a Hill. Nick Coombs here. I get the joy of being the lead pastor of City on a Hill in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. And today, the great privilege of opening the Bible with you. We've looked at some juicy topics in recent weeks, haven't we? Sex, marriage, singleness. Well, today we get even more on the edge. We're looking at food offered to idols. More seriously, we're going to walk through two whole chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. We're going to actually see that it raises a massive issue that is incredibly relevant for you and me even today. To prepare our hearts for what God might have to say for us, would you pray with me right now? Let's pray together. Almighty God, Your word is truth. Sanctify us today in your truth. Lord, I pray that you might use this passage in 1 Corinthians to paint for us and point us to Jesus, that he might be as big and as bold and as beautiful as he really is. Help us see him by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, last year I read uh, Ken Casey's controversial classic, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Perhaps you've read it or seen uh, the film starring Jack Nicholson, which won five Academy Awards. Uh, The story takes place inside a psychiatric ward, uh, and it's narrated by a Native American named Chief. He introduces us to a man named McMurphy, who has uh, pled or, or faked insanity and found himself in this psych ward uh, to get out of criminal charges. Upon his arrival, McMurphy cannot believe the way the patients are treated. The oppression at the hands of the institution, the electroshock therapy, the way that the uh, patients bend to the will of the nurses, the tyranny from the powers at be. These guys need to be free. And so Murphy, McMurphy sets out to help the other patients experience real life, experience true freedom. The story becomes somewhat of a commentary uh, about the individual versus the institution. McMurphy organizes an unauthorized boat trip and a wild party, all to try to help his fellow patients experience true freedom. Oh, to be free. Written against the backdrop of what would become the 1960s, it's easy to see why this became a classic. Our world longs to be free. Humanity longs to be free. In the story, McMurphy's attempts at pursuing and winning freedom, they actually ultimately end in destruction and despair. The chief ends up being the only one who's able to escape from the institution. Every other character seems to end up injured. And last we see of McMurphy is that he's been lobotomized and left in a vegetative state. Some pursue freedom and attain it. Others pursue freedom to their own destruction. Today, we're going to jump back into 1 Corinthians, and we get to see Paul's writings and instructions to the early church and how they should handle their newfound freedom in Christ. They didn't have some of the freedoms that you and I uh, experience today, but they did have newfound freedom in Jesus. They knew Jesus had come. That when he had come, Jesus proclaimed himself and proved himself to be the true king. And that as the king, he had spiritually set the captives free. That he had fulfilled the law of Moses. He had paid the debt for their sin. He had hung on the cross and declared, it is finished. They knew that they weren't justified by what they did or disqualified by what they didn't do. They were accepted by God through what Jesus had done for them by faith. And so they were now free. But how were they now to live as free Christian men and women? How should we live with the responsibility that God gives us to exercise our will, to follow our conscience as it's informed by the Word of God and use our responsibility. The presenting issue for this question was this topic of food offered to idols. We're going to walk through Paul's argument in chapters 8 and 9 and see for ourselves what should we do with our freedom in Christ. We're going to see four principles that Paul shares with the Corinthians and with us today about how we should wield our freedom. We'll pick those out as we walk through it. Let's turn and look at chapter 8. Paul pivots from his discussion about uh, marriage, sex, and singleness to this other issue posed by the Corinthians. And it will have been posed to Paul in writing because it was such a prominent issue in the city of Corinth. One of the most common social activities was that people would get together and eat food, which had previously been offered to idols. 
Archaeologists have done us a great service, and they've found 51 different ancient invitations that tell us whether it was a first birthday party, a religious ceremony, a political festival, a, a wedding, and whether it was at the gymnasium, at a home, or at a pagan temple, the Corinthians were constantly involved in festival celebrations where meat will have been sacrificed to an idol. Whatever you were occasion you and I might experience where we have a barbecue together or we cut a cake, the Corinthians will at those occasions have eaten meat that was sacrificed to idols, meat involved in a pagan ceremony and offered to pagan idols. And so naturally, some of these Corinthians have now become Christians and they used to accept the RSVP, accept the invitation with no questions asked. But now that they're Christians, they're starting to think, should we continue to be involved and eat this meat and be at these festivals? And so Paul responds in verse 1. Read with me. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." Now, like in previous chapters, the quotation marks here are incredibly helpful. Paul is quoting people who claim that they know the answer to this issue. There are those in the church who perhaps for contributing to their social capital, wanting to maintain a missional witness with the relationships they have with the pagan Corinthians around them. They want to accept the invitation and carry on eating this meat that was offered to idols. They know that there's, there's nothing magical about the ritual which the meat is taken through. Uh, the steak that they go to eat is just that steak. Surprisingly, Paul responds to them and says, you're right. There is only one God, the one God through whom all things exist. He says, it's good that you know that, but knowing isn't the issue. What you need to remember, Paul says in verse 3, is life isn't primarily about what you know. It's about being known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. If the person with a single digit IQ and learning disabilities loves God, it doesn't matter what else they don't know. They are known by God. If the academic with three postgraduate degrees loves God, it doesn't matter what else they do know. They are known by God. You see, what was happening in the church in Corinth was what often happens amongst us as Christians. They were looking for a black and white answer on how to live, how to behave, how to interact. They wanted to know, just give us the answer. What is the right thing to do? We're always looking for this. How simple life would be if there was just a verse that literally everything, what to eat, what to drink, what to wear, what to watch. But the Bible isn't just a manual for the Christian life. The Christian life isn't an Ikea flat pack, which has simple steps to tick off. And you and I aren't robots that can be programmed in that way. The Christian life is about a relationship with the living God. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, it's printed on my desk at home. So I'm reminded of the reality every day. What is my only comfort in life and death? 
that I am not my own, but I belong both in body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that the Christian life is about your union with Jesus, being known by God by faith and not by works. Well, it actually complicates matters when it comes to the works. Because God gives very clear instructions on some things. We've seen it very recently, haven't we? Flee sexual immorality. God could not be clearer. But there's a lot that he leaves up to us. He's endowed us with a lot of responsibility. He's given us a conscience to be informed by his word that we might be able to exercise our will for his sake. And so in one place, the Bible says drunkenness is a sin. And yet in another, it says that a good wine is a good gift that we should enjoy. So how do we navigate alcohol? There's freedom. In one place, the Bible says that hey, you should think about distancing yourself from the world for the sake of your purity. Yet in another, it says, hey, you should be so close to the world that you're able to give an answer for the hope that you have. And so how do we navigate our cultural engagement? There's freedom. In one place, the Bible says that you cannot serve both God and money. And in another, that if you do not provide for your household, you are worse than an unbeliever. So how do we navigate wealth and money and what we should give, save and spend? There's freedom. And we could go on. Our politics, what we watch on TV, our parenting choices, our schooling choices. We are to love the Lord your God with all our hearts, soul, mind and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. And inside that, our conscience is meant to guide us. And what we like to do, because we default to thinking that we come to God with all our knowledge and good works in tow, is we like to add our own rules. In his great book, Seculosity, author David Zarr writes about how we make rules and religion out of everything. I noticed this when I had kids. Everyone has an opinion about what righteousness looks like when you're about to become a parent. You're asked, you know, are you going to do the baby-wise method or are you going to do attachment parenting? Hey, you've got to get the bugaboo stroller. We had the bugaboo stroller. No, no, get the baby jogger city select. The turning circle on that thing is incredible. And people ask, are you going to use disposable nappies or are you going to use cloth nappies? You know, you should really think about cloth nappies. You know, think about the environment for the next generation. You know, no rashes. We enroll them in Christian school or in private school or in public school or homeschool. You've got to look like you've got this pregnancy thing all together. And so you rearrange your second bedroom for three whole weeks, 14 times to get the Instagram money shot so that you can project to the world that you've got this. You know exactly what parenting is going to hold. And then the baby actually comes and it gets even worse. If you are a new mum, you're expected to launch a bespoke creative online business that targets other mums, presents to the world that you've got this in control image, breastfeeding. Oh, it's a total breeze. This whole motherhood thing, I'm totally on top of it. After a few months, the same people who used to ask you, so when are you going to have kids? Now ask you, so when are you going to go back to work? And those who don't have kids think to themselves, so like, what do you even do all day? It is exhausting. And it's exhausting because it's a form of legalism that says, this is what it looks like to be enough. Here are the rules that you need to follow. When in reality, in Christ, you are free to not pursue parenting to make you look like enough. Evidently, in Corinth, the issue of food offered to idols exposed the human heart. In our freedom, 
We can tend toward legalism and we can tend toward license. All of us claim to know the truth. Legalism makes new rules and says, here are the rules to follow. I know the truth. Here's how we need to live. License breaks the rules and says, I know I am free. I can do what I want. And Paul comes along and he says to the Corinthians, hey, you are right in what you know. But it doesn't matter what you know. It matters how you love. And so he goes on in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so there were two groups in Corinth. One group Paul called the weak that formerly worshipped idols. There are another group who are happy to continue to go along and eat this meat because it's just meat. And so Paul says it's not necessarily about knowing what's right, but doing what's loving. Jesus has set us free from the bondage of legalism. Jesus has set us free from the selfishness of licentiousness. Jesus has set us free to walk in the way of love. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so Paul's first principle for us, how we should wield our Christian freedom, is that you and I should forego our freedoms for the sake of the family. Forgo our freedoms for the sake of the family. Just in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've heard about marriage and singleness, haven't we? Before uh, I got married, Jules and I, my wife, we sought to follow the Bible and preserve some uh, certain things for marriage. And so there were boundaries, there were restrictions. And then after we got married, we could enjoy those freedoms. But with them, as Paul mentioned in the text last week, when you get married comes all sorts of other stuff you need to put your attention to. You've got this newfound care and concern for a husband or a wife. Well, in a similar way, when we become Christians, we get set free from all that we would want to be free from. Our guilt, our shame, working towards uh, our relationship with God. We are known by Him in a saving way. But our freedom propels us into a new family to which we're now bound to in new ways. And so Paul says we should forego some of our freedoms for the sake of the family. You and I are called to put our brothers and sisters in Christ before ourselves. Paul is kind of giving the Corinthians the same speech that Mufasa gave to Simba in Lion King. Mufasa looks out on the vast savannah and he says to Simba, Simba, everything the light touches is yours. And then he points over to the elephant graveyard, except that. Do not go there. And so Paul looks out on the vast savannah of Christian freedom. He says, hey, you can eat what you want. You can drink what you want. You can wear what you want. But if any of it makes your brother and sister stumble, don't do it. The elephant graveyard of the church is disunity and division. Lift your brothers and sisters up instead of harming or hurting their walk with Jesus. We should be all in on building up the body of Christ. And so if what you drink will make others stumble, you might be right to drink it, but you're wrong if it harms them. If your passion for politics, if your social media conversation, if your love of a certain TV show, if your desire to go to the club, 
If any way you are living that might be in a stumbling block to others. Yes, there's a sense in which the weak need to grow up a little, but they're not going to stumble their way into maturity. We need to be patient. We need to be kind. We need to be loving for the sake of the family. We need to forego some of our freedoms for them. And so how are you going considering that you are part of a family? How are you going considering your brothers and sisters in Christ and seeking to build them up with the way that you live? This principle highlights just how powerful the church is for one another. You and I have incredible power. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a community to raise a Christian. Sanctification is a community project. And the famous saying is that you become most like the five people you hang around most. I know that to be true in my own life. The trajectory of my growth in Jesus is directly proportionate to the people I was hanging around at the time, for good and for ill. Such is the power that we have to influence one another. And so for the sake of your Christian brothers and sisters, Paul says, descend to the sensitive consciences amongst us. Bring people along gently, lest they stumble by joining you in what their conscience is telling them is wrong. Forgo your freedom for the sake of the family. Paul then continues, and he even takes it up a notch by now in chapter 9, using himself as an example. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And then he goes on in a lengthy argument to, to lay out about why he won't accept money from the Corinthians. And so he pulls in uh, evidence from ordinary practice where soldiers, they work, but they get paid by the government, from scriptural precedent by quoting the book of Deuteronomy, from common sense, from religious custom in the temple, and even from the words of Jesus himself, all for Paul to say that he certainly has the right to a salary from the Corinthians as he ministers amongst them, but out of his love for the world and all people freely hearing the gospel, he refuses to accept pay. Hear what Paul says in verse 15 and 16. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. The necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And so Paul is the exemplar of foregoing freedom and of renouncing his own rights because he wants to be able to say the gospel comes through him to the world free of charge. And so not only should we consider our Christian family, but Paul's second principle for how we should wield our freedom, he tells us we should renounce our rights for the sake of the world. Renounce our rights for the sake of the world. Paul so wants people to hear the message of Jesus that he is sensitive to anything getting in the way of people freely hearing that message. And now Paul's mentality here is radically different than mine. Because I embody the age of entitlement. What are my rights? What am I entitled to? The natural bent of my heart is to ask subconsciously, what can I get out of this? This week, it just so happened to be my birthday. You know what I do most birthdays? Birthdays are like a, a, a ticket you get to say to everything, what can I get out of this? And so I searched for birthday deals online, asking myself, what can I get out of this? And also, 
hopefully beating capitalism at the same time. Subway were offering me a free cookie if I was to purchase a meal. No thanks. TGI Fridays, uh, a very generous offer of $10 off, which if you've seen their prices is about a 2% discount. Hungry Jack's offered me a free Whopper. And the one I actually took up, Boost Juice, gave me a free birthday smoothie. Thank you, Boost Juice. You see, Paul doesn't think, what can I get out of this? He doesn't think about what he's entitled to. He thinks about how can he most help people see Jesus? How can he most serve the world in meeting Jesus? This is worth us thinking about as we consider our re-entry into physical church gatherings, isn't it? How can we re-enter in a way that is going to best witness to the gospel of Jesus, to the wider world that is looking at us? Do we demand our rights? Do we think about what we're all entitled to as Christians in this society? Or do we humbly step back in and, and move in a way that is best for the health of our people and the meek? the people around our church, that we want to make up our church in the years to come. Paul thinks radically different to me because Paul has seen something about Jesus I so often fail to see. The gospel tells us that God is the one with all the rights, that God is the one with all the entitlement. He is entitled to all the glory in the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God from eternity past to eternity future. Angels and archangels have and will continue to surround the throne, crying out glory, glory, glory to God. And we're going to join them one day. And yet that God who deserves all that, who has all that in Jesus took on flesh he surrendered what he was entitled to so that his enemies like you and like me, we might get what we aren't entitled to and yet receive freely. Jesus humbles himself, taking on flesh and blood and pouring out that blood in your place and mine. Even though we've done nothing to deserve it, only we were ill-deserving. He forsook his home in heaven to bear our sin. He gave up his freedom so that we might gain ours. He laid down his rights so that we might take up his righteousness. And because Jesus has done all of that, the offer goes out to the world, the free offer. Paul knew that invitation of the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The free offer to freely received, the free gift of God's free grace for sinners and sufferers like you and I goes out to us today. And so perhaps you're checking out this thing called Christianity today. Welcome. That offer goes out to you. Your sin, your shame, your guilt, your, your striving to try to make something of your life, to be enough. Jesus offers you today the free gift of his grace, that you can be made right with God all because of what he has done and not what you have done. Jesus joins the prophet Isaiah. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you freedom. 
And when we receive that free gift of God's grace in Jesus, we no longer ask, what can I get out of it? We ask, how can I make Jesus look good? What can I give to Jesus because of this? Out of love, we don't cling to our rights in the world. We want to point the world to Jesus. And so we renounce our rights for the sake of the world. Paul continues in verse 19, chapter 9. He says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. And so Paul makes a habit of what we have been forced to do in this season. He pivots his whole life again and again for the sake of the gospel. And this little passage here is at the heart of who we are, who we want to be at City on a Hill. The gospel is this timeless word of God's free grace to sinners and sufferers like you and me. And yet Paul is saying that we as Christians, we need to be agile that we might communicate that timeless message of good news in timely ways to our local context. And his example tells us about how we should go about exercising our freedom. And so Paul's third principle for us is that we should embrace change for the sake of the gospel. Embrace change for the sake of the gospel. This principle is why you are watching this service right now. Three months ago, you could not find a City on a Hill digital gathering, but a global pandemic wasn't going to stop us. And so to the online world, our church went online in order that we might reach those online. And we embrace that change for the sake of the gospel. Because behind every IP address is someone made in the image of God who needs to hear about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. If that's you, we want you to come to Jesus today. Every Wi-Fi network represents a household who needs to receive the free gift of God's grace. One of the blessings of this season in the long term, I pray, is that our movement of churches might be shaken up and we might wake up. So we might become a, a movement that is innovative in how we can get the gospel to as many people as possible. When we get back together physically, there's going to be this constant temptation, as there is in every church and in every organization, the constant temptation to say, hey, this is how we do it because this is how we've always done it. All of us have the temptation to love the music, and so we want it to stay the same. We love the liturgy, so we want the services to always look the same. We love that little butt groove in the seat that we always sit at because we sit there every single week. I love this quote from Tom Rayner. He says, When the preferences of the church members are greater than their passion for the gospel, the church is dying. Why don't we commit together as a church to keep the gospel at the center, to put the gospel first? Hell is hot. Eternity is a long time. Jesus is worthy. Let us do whatever we can so that all people, as many people as possible, can meet 
him. We don't have the luxury of resting into our preferences, of reclining back in the way that things have always done. If there are better ways for more people to meet Jesus. And so let this season of your life be a season where it doesn't just shake you up to thinking about, hey, perhaps I could work from home a little bit more. Let this season shake all of us up, that we might be a church of men and women who are constantly thinking about how can we help people meet Jesus. This is why God gives us freedom. God hasn't elected all the white people to himself. God hasn't adopted all the degree-educated people to himself. God didn't just choose all the Greek-speaking people 2,000 years ago. No, Jesus wants every tribe, every nation, every color, every culture with him in heaven. And we have been gifted and endowed with responsibility. We have been gifted and endowed with freedom so that we might seek to get the gospel to every one of those tribes, every one of those nations, every one of those colors, every one of those cultures. And so for their sake, let us embrace change that they might see the gospel. Finally, Paul continues his lengthy argument on Christian freedom with what seems like a little bit of a diversion. Where's he going in these last few verses? And it's good to know that he's writing, obviously, to ancient Corinth. And ancient Corinth was in ancient Greece. And they're a society, therefore, very familiar with athletics. In Corinth itself, they held or hosted the Isthmian Games every two years before and after the Olympian Games. And so Paul takes up this athletic imagery, essentially being an example of what he's just called us to do. He contextualizes what he's saying to his hearers. And he says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, I'm no athlete, but I know that athletes put in an incredible amount of work. In fact, just this week, I looked up the, the global leaderboards on my Strava app, and I saw that the leader of the cycling for, for this month had cycled 28 hours per a day for a whole month. I'm no mathematician either, but it didn't quite add up there. But the point is, athletes put in an incredible amount of work. Early mornings, a lot of sweat, strict diet, early nights, early mornings. It goes on. And the self-control required to be an athlete, Paul says, is similar to the self-control required of you and me as followers of Jesus. Here's Paul's point. We are so free as Christians. We have so much choice. God has given us so much responsibility to, to exercise and live out our lives in Christ that we actually need to discipline ourselves lest we follow our hearts into idolatry. And so Paul's fourth encouragement for us is to exercise self-control for the sake of glory. You are actually going to have to exercise some self-control or the freedom you have to have a beer might turn into dependency on your freedom to have a beer. The freedom you have to choose which church you're a part of, choose which suburb you live in, 
Choose your path. Invest in your career. Well, you're so free to do that that it might actually turn into an idolatrous dependency on your safe, comfortable, middle-class suburban life. And you'll cling to these things. And we do cling to these things, which in and of themselves aren't bad things. But we freely let what God gives us as good gifts and we turn them as entitlements for ourselves. You've got to be self-controlled to stay free or your heart will attach itself to your freedom. And so Paul says that he is watchful of where his heart goes. He is watchful. He disciplines himself. That we need to enjoy God's gifts that's good and right to do, but never give ourselves to those good gifts in such a way that they turn into idols. This is the Christian life. It takes self-control. There's a reason the Christian life is hard. Paul says we need to work like an athlete. But did you notice the promise? That even though our self-control is similar to that of an athlete, the reward for an athlete pales into comparison to the reward that is coming for you and I who are following Jesus. We receive an imperishable prize glory with Jesus forever. One day we're going to be in the glory of Jesus and our hearts are going to be looking to attach itself to all these good gifts. Our hearts are going to be fully and perfectly attached to King Jesus himself. Glory is coming where the freedom that we experience right now is just somewhat of a shadow compared to the substance of freedom that we have being fully free in Christ forever. That is the glory that awaits you and I with him. And so we're left with the question, how can we stay so free that we find ourselves free forever with Jesus? How can we keep trusting in Jesus in such a way that this playground of freedoms with all of its delights, all of its pleasures that we get attracted to, how can we keep Jesus first in the midst of this world and our lives well, the story of the Bible tells us how. The beginning of the Bible, at the start of Genesis, God creates the, the whole garden. And you can imagine the, the garden was full of thousands and thousands of trees of which Adam and Eve were encouraged, go for it. Go forth, be fruitful, exercise dominion over this garden. But hey, there's just this one tree that, that I want you guys to avoid. Just this one tree. Don't, don't, don't even look at this one tree. They had all the freedom in the world. And yet they were deceived into taking of the fruit. Well, today in Christ, God has set us free from the back-breaking enslavement of serving thousands and thousands of different idols, idols that our hearts make up every single day. We are free. But now God tells us something else. He says, hey, there's just this one tree that I don't want you to take your eyes off of. There's just this one tree that I want you to live your life with it at the center. There's just this one tree that I want you to turn back to again and again. And that is the tree on which I've sent my son, Jesus, to die. You see, the gory of the cross that reminds us of where we've come from, of what we deserve, that reminds us of what we have contributed to the death of Jesus, the Son of God Himself, 
or the glory of the cross, when we fix that in the center of our minds, when it's at the top of our affections, the glory of the cross leads to the glory for God's people. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your love, the flame of your love burning for Jesus. Make the gospel of Jesus your priority. Delight in what he's done for you, in setting you free. Enjoy that freedom. Church father Augustine, he once summarized the Christian life as that we should all just love God and do whatever you please. The logic is that if we love God, if God is really at the first place in our life, then whatever we please will be what pleases him. And so you are free. You are free to exercise your will. You are free to walk according to your conscience in a whole host of different matters in your life. You are free and called to exercise the responsibility with which you have been endowed. But here are the four principles Paul wants us to walk by. We should forgo our freedoms for the sake of the family. We should renounce our rights for the sake of the world. We should embrace change for the sake of the gospel. And we should exercise self-control for the sake of glory. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we praise you so much that you have set us free. That you in Jesus have come into the world to live our life for us, to die our death in our place. And then you've risen to show us that you are the king and that in your kingdom, there is great freedom. In your kingdom, there is great rest. Free us from working that we might be enough and that we might work in order to be accepted by you. May we rest into what Jesus has done for us in being our only hope, our only comfort. We thank you that we are known by you in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that all of us might be able to exercise the responsibility you've given us responsibly. Help us be brothers and sisters who look out for each other. Help us be men and women who who lay down some of our rights for the sake of our people. We want to join our, our family. We pray that you might please help us to continue to put Jesus first. May we look to what he has done for us. May the cross be at the center of our affections. May we love God and do whatever we please. Because in loving you, what we please, what we ple- what pleases us, pleases you. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.